This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity mates, episode eight. Here, Here we, we are. <laughs> Back again. Really excited for this episode. We've got yeah. our Paul Bennett, the CEO of Spaceship, on as our second interview for expert investors. Yeah, uh, Paul Bennett, uh, I'm sure you would have seen his company advertising all over Facebook. It's called Spaceship. It's a super fund, and they've been really getting after the Facebook ads recently. So kicking it off, as always, uh, we've got some news for you guys, uh, and then we'll jump into the interview. <laughs> So, first news cab off the rank. <laughs> <laughs> oh, first news bus off the rank, you could say. Yeah, nice. What do you got for us, Rand? Yeah. So, uh, it's about Borussia Dortmund. Now, for those of you who don't know, they're probably the second biggest soccer team in Germany after Bayern Munich. And they're actually publicly traded on the German stock exchange. Very interesting. I didn't know now, soccer teams were publicly what, traded. What, yeah, neither did I. Apparently, uh, even the Brisbane Broncos in the rugby league uh, traded on the ASX. Wow. So if you're a big Broncos fan and you love your team, you can own your team as well. I don't think you make much money off them. but Yeah, I just don't yeah. understand it. Very interesting. Yeah, but, but the difference is, so Brisbane Broncos, you might not make a lot of money, but these big European football clubs, they do quite well for themselves. Mm. So, I mean, I'm sure most of their owners aren't in it for the money, but there's a bit more. There's a bit more financial incentive over in Europe. So, what do the but, shareholders have voting rights for? I wonder, or do they at all? Like, what do they vote for in a soccer team? I assume it would be the same. They they could appoint the board. The board appoints a CEO, and the CEO is the head of the soccer team. So they make they decide who the coach is. They decide how much the manager can spend. Um, yeah, I, I guess it's, think of it like a company, but rather than you know selling computers or selling cans of baked beans, their company's goal is to win the Champions League. 
So and they make a lot of money doing it. Yeah. There's a lot of money in it. Like sports these days, multi-billion dollar business with, you know, the TV rights deals and stuff like that. So I haven't looked into it much at all, but it could be could be a good investment if yes. people are interested. Something's but anyway, anyway, sorry, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> One <laughs> investor had a different idea. And what they did was they bought a bunch of put options. And what that is, is essentially... Um, it's a way to bet against a company's share price. So if you buy put options in uh, Borussia Dortmund, you're basically, uh, you stand to make money if the share price falls. And so what this investor did was he bought 15,000 put options in Dortmund and stood to make 4 million euro on the fall of the share price. Okay. Then what he did was he planted a bomb under Borussia Dortmund's bus and it detonated and it injured one of their players. Luckily, no one was killed. But um, this guy has just been arrested and he's been charged with attempted murder and a bunch of other offences. And it's all come out that, well, the German police are alleging that the reason he did it was to try and make, to make some, some money. money. Unbelievable yeah. story. It, does, it certainly doesn't paint investors no, in a good light. You always, you um, always hear about, you know, insider trading and I know. stuff like that. I mean, you hear of unethical behaviour and this is just taking it to the next level. Yeah, yeah, it is. And look, it would be naive to think uh, this is the only person that's trying to sabotage a company to try and make money. Yeah. But uh, he's definitely one of the more high-profile ones yeah. uh, given it's a huge soccer team. Unbelievable, but did the share price do, do anything significant? Do we know? Uh, it fell it fell a little bit on the on the bombing, but I mean, at the end of the day, it didn't really affect their share price because it didn't really affect their you know position as a company, their position in the market, the players they have, the coach they have, yeah, their position in like German football. That that's the reason that they're valued at what they are, yeah, not because of you know their buses. Well, moving on then, someone who's definitely making their money in a, in a legitimate manner is Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon. A bit um, of a hero of both of ours. Yeah. You've probably seen in the news lately, there's been a lot of chat of Jeff bringing Amazon to Australia. Um, but there hasn't been any true confirmation from Jeff about this. Um, but there was an article recently that confirmed that they were looking at a huge warehouse for their distribution, yeah. which is a sign that they're definitely on their way. Do we know where it is yet? Out, definitely out in Eastern Creek area, they've shown interest in uh, a massive warehouse. I think they were talking the size of five MCGs. Yeah, yeah, I heard that that stat as well. That's that's pretty big. Which is massive. Means um, the Swans could lose five games at once. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly good news for consumers. Uh, Amazon's yeah. going to come and change the retail landscape in Australia. It's also good news for small to medium-sized businesses as well because Amazon own a fantastic platform that allow businesses to uh, distribute and sell their products through Amazon without having to worry about the distribution and storage of the products themselves. So, Yeah. Now, just to give an idea of just how big a giant killers Amazon are, I've got a bit of a list going of companies, big American companies, you know, the established big names that had been there for, you know, decades that Amazon have destroyed. Yeah. So we've, we've got Borders, their second biggest bookseller that just doesn't exist anymore. Gone. Barnes & Noble on life support. Won't, won't last much longer. Gone. So they're, they're the two biggest booksellers pre-Amazon that are just not really there anymore. Then we've got uh, in sort of electronics, Radio Shack, Bank has gone bankrupt twice. Gone. 
in like clothing and apparel, JC Penney's, Macy's, Sears are all really struggling or have buckled. Destroyed. Uh, Walmart used to be the biggest retailer in the world. Not anymore. And they're really, they're competing hard to keep their market share against Amazon. So these, these are like all companies that we've heard of in Australia and that, you know, were sort of fixtures in American life for decades and decades. Yeah. And yeah, Amazon has just crushed them all. Absolutely crushed them. And I read an interesting article at the start of the week that highlighted one of the reasons that Jeff is able to do this is with due to his relentless um, focus on the customer. Yeah. He has a very strong focus on ensuring that every single thing that they do from the distribution all the way through the customer service uh, is is in the customer's absolute best interest. And that's why in America now that they're becoming the number one go-to because they know that they'll get their product on time probably faster than most other places that they would yeah, buy it it's... from. They get it, you know, within, in some instances, within hours of ordering. And then there was yeah. an example given where a, a customer jumped online and had an issue with her Kindle, which is a product that you can buy on Amazon. And she said that within 15 minutes of uh, lodging her claim for help online, she got a call from a customer help center from Amazon. They weren't able to help her with her query. And so they said someone would call her from the US within five minutes and, and, and that happened and they resolved the issue with the Kindle within half an hour, which that's I thought was pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's the customer service you dream of. Yeah, yeah exactly. And and it's what's going to kill places like you know Harvey Norman and Meyer and, and yeah. potentially even JB is going to have someone now running you know, running them, giving a run for their money. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that hardware hasn't like, obviously Amazon have a, have some market share, but they haven't been giant killers in the same way that they have in a lot of these other spaces. So it will be interesting to see the, the, um, the interesting thing about Amazon though, is that they're very adaptable to local markets and, um, they, they get really good teams in place to compete in the market that they're competing in. Mm. So the strategy in America hasn't just been replicated, you know, over and over again. Mm. The, in, the, the one that I'm really interested in is India is a real, really big battleground for Amazon at the moment because there's quite an established e-commerce platform there called Flipkart. Yeah. Indian owned, Indian operated. Uh, so obviously very acclimatized to the local conditions. And Amazon is investing billions in India at the moment moment to take on Flipkart and it, it is really an interesting battle to see and it's also it's interesting to see just these two giants slugging yeah. it out but yeah. also to see how well Amazon adapts to local environments yeah very much it's, so um it's a it's a warning shot for any retail giant in Australia and third news item uh quite topical is to do with superannuation and also what everyone's talking about the housing crisis or the, the housing bubble that we're seeing in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, certainly not in other areas of Australia, but particularly uh, Sydney and Melbourne. And there's yeah. been a lot of debate at the moment uh, within government uh, as the budget is coming out soon in May as to what measures they can put in place to make Housable more affordable uh, or accessible for uh, our generation in particular as you know, people are finding that they're just getting squeezed out of the market and aren't finding any opportunity to buy with you know anything reasonable or, or affordable um so one of the suggestions that has been under debate for a while now is 
having super available to the younger generation. So that would mean withdrawing what is available in your super account at the moment and uh, in some way using that to go towards a house, be it in the form of a deposit or, or, or whatever it may be. That would be a measure of allowing us to you know, access housing a bit easier than if we were to try and save the deposit ourselves. However, mm. there's been a lot of debate about it and there's a uh, overwhelming support for this not to go through, uh, particularly yeah. from uh, Malcolm Turnbull. However, it's interesting that uh, the treasurer, um, Scott Morrison, is in favour of this policy. So the reasons that you know it would be a, a bad idea uh, is two reasons. One is uh, a revenue loss to the budget over, over years, which would be billions of dollars lost in revenue that comes from tax earnings on assets that are within your super fund. But the major concern um, is that the impact down the track, if, if we withdraw money from our super now, empty the accounts, put it into a, a house, then it doesn't solve the problem of having some sort of capital at, at when it comes to our retirement. And it, it's just going to put a whole lot more pressure on ourselves really to support, um, you know, support measures such as the pension and you know, there's going to be an increased number of people that are relying on the age pension later on down the track if, if this policy does go through and, and people do start using their super for housing because it speaks to the whole idea of compound interest. Having money in here now is going to be worth a lot more down the track than, you know, potentially if you were to use it on a house. But it's more to do with the fact that you're not going to be generating any income or revenue from an owner-occupied house as opposed to having your super in shares or in a property investment where you will be generating income and yeah. not, not so reliant on um, support measures such as the pension and that sort of stuff. So that's yeah, the big, con- that's it's, the major concern. It's probably worth just quickly explaining the the beauty of compounding. Um, just but as we go into this conversation about superannuation, uh, it is they you know Warren Buffett calls it the eighth wonder of the world because it really is the reason why you should start investing young. So hypothetically, if I had hundred dollars um, and I got five uh, percent, sorry, hundred dollars in shares and I got five percent dividend dividend on that, I'd be getting a five dollar dividend. But then if I reinvested that and so I had hundred and five dollars in shares then uh, and I got another 5% dividend the year later, I would get $5.25 in uh, dividends. And so then if you reinvest that, then your dividend grows. And if you reinvest that, uh, it grows and it grows and it grows. And it grows at an exponential rate. And that's why, you know, if you get in the market young, especially if you get in it while, in your, while you're in your 20s and you, uh, you hold a lot of the money that you've got in the market or at least you, you can you can buy and sell different shares but you don't take it out of the market that that's where you really start to make a lot of wealth and that that's where you can see warren buffett's wealth has exponentially grown and especially as he's got to the, the his very late years you know now he's the richest man in the world or the second richest man in the world because of this just beauty of compounding because the more you have in the market, the more you're going to get, and then you put that back in the market, and then it just grows and grows and grows. Yeah. And that that's why superannuation is so important when you're young. And I guess that's as good as any a point to introduce our interview with the CEO of a superannuation fund. Yeah, great segue there, Ren. <laughs> <laughs> so that um, takes us perfectly into uh, Paul, who, as we said at the start of the episode, is 
the CEO of Spaceship, which is a superannuation fund that is trying to uh, disrupt the way that we think about superannuation and the way that we invest in superannuation. Uh, he feels that there is a heavy reliance on in, you know, superannuation investing in the big four banks and miners and, and that sort of stuff. Telstra, and it's Telstra. Yeah. And it's not really the direction that the world is going in terms mm, we're of... Very, we're a very insular nation yeah. as Australian investors, yeah. But if you look at some of the world's biggest companies at the moment and where a lot of the world is um, putting their money, it's in technology and tech companies. So Spaceship has a focus on investing superannuation into tech stocks. Not entirely, but a proportion of your portfolio would be invested in tech stocks. So something new on the market, something different and something worth definitely having a look at. Paul himself is a very accomplished man. He's ex-Goldman Sachs and then... Worked at Airtree Venture Capital for a while, Australia's biggest venture capital firm. Yeah, so he's had some experience in VC and has then and is now working with, I think they said a team of nine um, to start yeah, getting space very small the ground. Team. Yeah, very yeah, small Yeah, very team. surprising, yeah. So, uh, if you if you want to check them out, uh, spaceship.com.au or scroll down your Facebook news feed, I'm sure you'll see an ad by them. Yeah, enjoy the interview. <laughs> so, Paul, do you want to start by telling us a bit about yourself and about Spaceship? So, uh, Spaceship is a new superannuation fund for folks with long time horizons. So, generally, we're focusing on the sort of 20 to 35 year old bracket. We started Spaceship because generally, and this is my personal opinion, if you if you are a young person who uh, is saving money compulsorily through super and you, you were to actually try and make a product decision within superannuation, it's actually really hard to do. Now, you know, you guys have, um, through the podcast that you have, is obviously investing backgrounds or finance backgrounds. So anyone with an investment finance background loves reading through a PDF or loves thinking about asset allocation. But for most young people, they, they find that a huge hurdle to to be able to enter into these products and, and make a decision around them. So, you know, historically, most people have been disengaged from their super because it is hard to understand, and you generally don't hear from your superannuation fund. Um, you know, some funds only send you once a year annual statement, and that's all you kind of get. So we wanted to start Spaceship to firstly uh, help people with their superannuation and think through from the ground up from first principles, if you were to start a super fund with a blank sheet of paper, what would that look like, yeah? And instead of trying to be all things to all folks, we just want to focus on our generation, which is you know my generation and, and your guys' generation, and um, build something that's very very helpful for them. So that's the kind of ethos around. Yeah. So from that, what makes Spaceship different? Like, how do you target yourselves at that millennial generation? You know, our generation is the generation that you'd call the internet generation. So we've seen technology completely spread itself through society. You know, we've watched the five most valuable companies in the world become technology companies. You know, locally we've seen companies like Atlassian grow bigger than Qantas. We use it every day. You know, we're sitting here on iPhones. We're using Snapchat. We're going home to Netflix on the weekends. We're in Ubers. And when we go away, we're usually in an Airbnb. So... It's not a big leap for people to think, well, if I'm constructing a portfolio that's going to be around for the next 30 years, shouldn't it kind of be aligned to where the world is going and not so much where the world is today, right? And if you look at your superannuation, certainly for my own personal superannuation, <clears throat> when I looked at it, I saw that you know, it had like a 40-50% allocation to Australian stocks, you know, mm. and um, you know, if you look at Australia, Australia's got 3% of the world equities, you know, so... Um, the other type of customer we, we get is the, the index type customer who's like, hey, I just want to own the index. Well, 
the, the Aussie index isn't really an index. It's 36% financials, it's 17% commodities, and it's 15% property. So it's not even a diversified market. And, and if you really want to just own the index, and that's an appropriate strategy for, for some people, shouldn't it be the world index? Why is it the Australian index or the US index or whatever? I mean, if you really want the, the top companies in the market basket, then you should own things called the MSCI World Index, right? Um, but even that's hard to do. Do you know what I mean? So we're, we're trying to differentiate ourselves not only through portfolio construction, but also just making the whole experience you know, to have an ease of use. So anyone with any type of background can approach these products and understand the importance of the financial asset they're building um, and then and then have all the information they need to make an appropriate decision. Yeah. At launch, is there going to be just one product offering or is there going to be a number that investors are going to be able to choose between depending on their associated risk level? So when you start with zero funds under management, you're very limited in what you can do, right? An example of that is you, it's hard to have life insurance. It's, you know, your fees are kind of um, constructed based on them not wanting you to go out of business and all sort of stuff, yeah? Um, so you'll see all those changes come through. And we'll, what we have to be careful of is um, you can't actually, a customer can't buy a product based on what the price is going to become. They can only buy on what it is today. Do you know what I mean? So you've got to be careful on how you market where the product is going. But it's, it's you know, no, it's, it's obvious that we want our fees to come down. We want to add life insurance. We only have one investment option. Now you're going to see that expand over time. But we can't overly, you know, uh, stand on the top of the mountain and, and talk about that sort of stuff because you know there's a fine line on, on from a compliance standpoint. But we've been so fortunate that an early group of customers have started coming on board since January when we were when we got regulatory approval to be a super fund. Um, you know we've been onboarding them since uh, early to January. Um, you know we've almost got a hundred million dollars with the fund now under management. Um, and what we're doing now is we're putting through a, a set of product changes which I kind of spoke to then. So we're actually kind of just. You know, hey, we don't want to. We don't want to grow too quickly. We've got enough fun now that we can do the things we want to do with product, and we're making those changes. So, uh, and that takes a bit of time because we're using an external trustee um, uh, compliance uh, department, um, and, and you know they take their time because they should. You know these sorts of things. Um, but we're super excited. We're hoping to get that all done in Q2 and, and really kind of. Uh, grow market share from that. So. Awesome. Are you able to give us an indication of what the split is going to be in terms of investing in tech and then how you'll diversify? Yeah. So our our current tech core, so right now if you if you go into the portfolio, you'll see there's a tech core of 35% where it's all technology companies and then there's passive diversification around it. Uh, what we haven't built out, which is a thing that you need funds under management for, is alternative assets. You know, all super funds answer alternative assets with toll roads and property and private equity funds and stuff. We think there should be direct ownership in large technology companies. Okay. The movers of the world, the Airbnbs, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, We're going through that process. You know, we're excited about that process. Uh, I think when you have one investment option, rightly so, it's hard to kind of uh, be too aggressive in how much tech you own, Mm -hmm. generally. When you have multiple investment options, some folks who are like, I'm 20 years old, I've got $2,000 worth of super, I'm totally happy it being 100% in tech. You know, I'm, I don't know whether we'll get to that level, but to show an extreme end of the spectrum. Um, and then because you have multiple investment options, folks can kind of align themselves to their risk appetite in that class. And then all the way down to the other end of the spectrum, we're trying to um, do something around a passive um, portfolio. So those folks who just want to own the market, yeah? And we want to price that 
um, you know, in line with the rest of the industry and all that sort of stuff. So um, we're excited about all that sort of things, uh, but we can't say exact numbers on any of that yeah, until yeah. it's done. So. The reason I ask is because leading up to this, when we were talking to some mates, questions were thrown like, it's a great opportunity to get involved in the tech side, but then what happens if, if you're so heavily in tech? What happens if that industry totally. goes belly? What's, what's it, what the, the biggest misconception is that there's this whole short-termism that's moved into the markets over the last 50 years, where if you look at the average um, turnover of a stock in the 60s, it was actually seven years. So that was the average whole period, seven years, right? And then it's, you go to the New York Stock Exchange website, you can download all the data and you can see that chart over time. You look at it today, it's seven months. Mm-hmm. So it's gone from seven years to seven months. So if you talk to anyone today and you say, hey, I'm going to hold something for eight months, they're like, dude, you're a long-term investor. Right? Yeah. Do, you, do you reckon a lot of that's because of bots, though? Ah, look, it's, it's going to be it's going to be you know the trading activities and, and you know the, the quant, quant strategies have been around for a very long time. You know, um, uh, Renaissance um, Group has been around since the seventies, I believe. So the, the, there's always been quant, quantitative type trading. Mm-hmm. I think they've become more and more sophisticated. Yeah. But I think more generally, if you look at the way you know the addition of Bloomberg, the addition of CNBC, all these kind of media um, uh, and and, and uh, the opportunity to not buy a, a stock through a broker, but actually have to buy, be able to buy through a um, online discount um, trading platform. Mm-hmm. Everything's kind of built to move towards short termism. You know, the problem with that for a superannuation investor is that you can't sell out in ten years. You know, you actually have to keep your money in a box until you're sixty-five, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. The question becomes, if you're not going to leave the financial markets for the next 30 years, and you're starting with an average balance of, say, $40,000 today, next year you're going to add another 8000 next year, the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that, you're every year allocating money to the markets. And the question becomes more, not what's happening through a trading cycle, a business cycle, not so much what, you know, whether you can get alpha in a boom and, and a bust and all sorts of it's, it's more, I need a diversified portfolio of assets that I can continue to allocate over the long term. So then, that, then it feels like more like a kind of Warren Buffett approach, where it's like, hey, I want to select a hundred companies that I think are highly differentiated, highly defensible, and yeah, I may be paying too much in a bull market, but I know there's going to be a downturn, and I'm going to be continuing to allocate to these names through the cycle. So, if you look at, um, you know, if you look at long-term investing, there's really only two things that determine your return. It's it's your entry and is it trading multiple, so the valuation multiple. And give you an example of that: if you bought Amazon at the height of the dot-com bubble, um, if you were that stupid guy, <laughs> um, you pay 23 times earning, uh, 23 times revenue, right? 23 times revenue. Today, Amazon trades at two times revenue, right? Now, it's hugely hard to make a return when it's gone from 23 times revenue down to two times revenue, right? But if you're a long-term investor, you're actually aligning yourself to the underlying economic engine of that business. So Amazon, even though its its trading multiple has shrunk, the economic engine has continued to grow every single year. Yeah. So in in 1999, it had a billion of revenue. Now it's got something like 130 billion dollars worth of revenue. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you were the guy who bought Amazon on its most expensive day in 1999, you're still up 10 times today. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's well, what economic engine should you be aligned to? And some people will say to me, well. Hang on, Paul. Do you know there were so many dot com companies? Like, how would I have known to buy Amazon? Well, how many companies have a billion dollars worth of revenue? Like, that's a company yeah. that is on only a few people's radars because it's so large. So, um, so I don't know what your question was, but, but, but <laughs> you should really kind of, you know, superannuation, people have to realize how long term this is. And it's not about trying to trade through a cycle or anything. It's just really what are the hundred companies 
I'm engaged with and want to own over the next decade. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess maybe we'll uh, turn the focus to you a little bit and ask about like your personal investing journey and how you got to where you are today. Totally. So just to start very generally, like what, what got you interested in, in investing to start with? So I got investing, so I always wanted to run my own business and when, uh, and I was also very interested in computers at the same time, um, this was back, so I went through uh, university in 1999 to sort of 2002, um, I did a Bachelor of Business and um, I was working at a computer store where you actually could upgrade a computer, you could repair a computer, you could pull out a graphics card and put a new graphics card in. And that was my part-time job. And in my last year of university, I was like, I want to do this for myself because I see where they're getting the, the parts from out of Brisbane and all sorts of things. I started my own computer store with kind of, you know, 10 grand, um, what I had at the time. Um, and... Uh, you know, it was it was hugely profitable for a twenty year old. Like, yeah, not much money today, but at the time, I was like, oh my god, you know, I can actually, you know, spend a hundred bucks on Friday night and you know go crazy. So, um, you know, the store uh, was pretty much profitable from from day one. Um, and then I started thinking, what do I do with this? You know, I'm getting a thousand dollars profit a week from this thing or whatever it was. Uh, what should I do? Should I invest that? You know, so based on uh, a small business going well for me, I had to start thinking about learning how to invest. And I stumbled across a book on Warren Buffett and everything to that point really didn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, there was day trading books and there was gamble chart books mm. and all sorts of stuff. The only thing that really resonated with me as a business owner was here's a guy who invests in businesses as if he's owning the entire business, yeah? yeah? Rather than trying to buy something this quarter and sell it next quarter, he was going to buy Coca-Cola in 1987 and hold it until today. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, so that's how I kind of got into thinking through how to invest. And, and, and it was just such a buzz because I'd see my little retail store and I, mm. I knew what was wrong with it, right, as far as a competitive standpoint. And then to be able to kind of look at very big industries like UPS versus FedEx and think about, you know, uh, UPS's strategy of, of uh, the driver being an employee versus FedEx being, you know, uh, a franchise of the truck driver, you know, and kind of thinking about kind of, well, how, does it, how does that change the economics of both those businesses and the competitive standpoint and, and the differentiation and defensibility. And it was just such a fun kind of thing to kind of learn about all those businesses for the first time as a sort of 20-year-old. Yeah. So can you then explain what your sort of philosophy of investing is? Look, I think I've kind of talked to a little bit already. I think really there's two things that determine investment return. A change in valuation multiple and the growth in underlying economic engine. So if you look at Coca-Cola in the 60s, they weren't selling Coke in that many countries. Based on globalization, they were able to open up more and more markets, right? So that's the economic engine growing over time. What the trading multiple is, is tell me what the PE multiple of, of, of Coca-Cola is going to be next month. Who knows? And if you buy it this month and you need to sell it next month, the only thing that's going to determine your return is a change in that PE multiple. Look at Snapchat when they IPO'd. The first day they were up 44%, the next day they were down 12 and then down 10, and they zigged and zagged for the first five trading days. But what actually changed in the offices of Snapchat during that week to have such a massive change in equity valuation for that business? Nothing. Yeah. So for me, investing only becomes interesting when it's over the long term because then it becomes much, much more about evaluating the differentiation and defensibility of economic engines rather than what the guy across the table is willing to pay for your stock 12 months from now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So, so with that Snapchat one, a question we asked on one of our earlier podcasts was, will Snapchat be a Facebook or a Twitter yeah. in terms of its future success? And given that you're you know, a, a tech investor, I guess we'd be remiss not to ask you what, what your thoughts on Snapchat are. Okay. Oh, was it, yeah. Well, I, I can't exactly remember the numbers, um, but, but the way I think about Snapchat is they did $400 million worth of revenue last year, right? Twitter did two, two and a half billion dollars worth of revenue last year. Yeah? Facebook is doing 25 or $30 billion worth of revenue, right? Um, if you look at that on a per user basis, uh, Facebook is generating about $15 per user, right? Um, in their North American and more developed markets, they generate $60 per user. So that's what kind of what through advertising dollars at the very the, the, the best success a company can do right now is Facebook and it's either fifteen dollars across developed and developing markets per user or sixty dollars from a North American and European market. Right? Snapchat on the other end is generating two dollars fifty per user, right? mm. and the majority of their users are also in Europe and North America yeah. because they just haven't penetrated other markets. So if you look at the, the, the daily active users of Snapchat, I think they've got 158 million day, daily active users at this point. Um, the, the, the investment thesis around that business is really kind of moving from a $2.50 per user of revenue to something closer to Facebook. Right? Now, if you look at Twitter, Twitter hasn't been able to do that. Twitter generates $67 of, um, of uh, revenue per user, right? and their growth curve has left them. So they're not growing their customer base any further in their audience size. Whereas Snapchat is at the beginning of, uh, I never that say this word for modernization, right? Very beginning of that journey with only generating $2.50 per, per user. And if you go on Snapchat, you barely notice advertising, really. And their, their audience size is still growing very, very quickly. So they're the only two drivers that will really determine whether Snapchat is a Twitter outcome or a Facebook account. I think the other interesting thing about Snapchat is that uh, the team there has been so um, ambitious in product changes. 
So if you look at the, the last four years of Snapchat, they have really made bold moves to product. Yeah. Now, Twitter within a public markets environment, it's actually harder to make bold product changes because you've got to you've got to go to shareholders three months later and say was that a good idea or a bad idea whereas mm. snapchat's been able to do it in the private markets under you know without anyone looking at revenue or any or, or daus or any stuff like that so the question becomes uh can they as successfully you know iterate on product and innovate within a public market realm mm. i mean the, i think the jury's out on that but i think it's safe to say you're going to see um, revenue levels go from two dollars fifty up to at least Twitter, and then, and then perhaps yeah. beyond. If it does, then I, I've got no idea what the market cap of Snapchat is today, but um, it was IPOing at around twenty or twenty billion. Then you know, at, at generating four hundred million at two dollars fifty, well, you know, you can very easily get up to billions of dollars of revenue by that two dollars fifty going to six, seven, or even fifteen. Yeah. Or keep in mind that. Facebook's generating sixty dollars yeah. in North America. So w- where is the natural level for the time? I don't know. Yeah. That's a big question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so from that starting investing uh, from the profits from your small business, yes. where is your investment journey taking you? What are some of the things that you've sort of picked up along the way that could help our our listeners as they start their investing journeys? I think I'm, the, the, the wonderful thing about investing is that you learn so much about business, right? Mm-hmm. It's just such a wonderful intellectual exercise. And it's not just about business too. It's about, you know, where economies are going and how... Because the, the reason the economy is so important is because the government is such a, a massive actor in the economy, right? So if you're an actor as a business, and you get this gorilla, which is the government, then they do kind of impact your business, yeah? So it's, it's, so it's fascinating not only to learn about, you know, the competitive strategies of businesses and their differentiation and their defensibility, but then also flipping over to the economy and learning about, you know, the different types of economies in the world. And there, there, there is no really pure capitalist economy at all. You know, they're all, you know, even Trump's economy now, it's moving towards more of a, a dirigism, which is, you know, this idea that, you know, France after the World War II was more of a directed economy where the government kind of said, we should do this, we should do that, yeah? Mm. And that's what Trump seems to be moving towards. And it's fascinating to kind of learn about the how economic growth has worked under these different uh, levels of control from the mm. government, you know? Um, so for me, uh, investing is more of a uh, answering curiosity about the world than a, than, than a money-making exercise. Yeah. Um, but the sad thing is you need like five years before you'll learn anything. You know, like you, you know, as a 20 year old, you can't, you won't learn anything the first three months of investing. You, you, you'll, you'll wake up as a 25 year old and go, oh, I learned some stuff, you know, but no idea whether you made any money, right? And so I think that the first thing people should do is to move away from, I'm going to, I'm going to get 10 grand, I'm going to buy this stock and see what happens in the next 12 months. And what they instead should do is go, okay, I've got 10 grand, I'm going to slowly allocate that into the markets over the next 12 months. And then I'm going to set up an automatic savings tool to allocate to the markets over the next decade. Yeah, um, and that's um, that's kind of a hint of what we're building at Spaceship, where we we don't we don't really see a difference between compulsory savings and investment and discretionary savings and investment. Because lots of our customers, they sit there and go, I love what you're doing mm-hmm. over here in Super. I love what you're doing with portfolio and how you're helping me learn how to invest and all sort of stuff. I've got this kind of money in a savings account over here. I've got no idea what to do with it. I go to this person's website, I don't understand it. I want to start saving, I want to start building wealth. Are you going to build products over here as well? So we're kind of taking a more holistic approach to people's savings investment. We would love one day to wake up and be the savings button on your phone. Mm, okay. So 
That's so, how that's how we think about it. So does that mean a spaceship fund will start as well as a superannuation fund in the future? Totally. Okay. Yeah, you should. Great. Yeah, totally. And that's what yeah. we've, we've got a wonderful team working on all that sort of stuff. And so for beginners, then, when you say you're not going to learn anything in five years, mm. what what's an, a way that you would suggest without directly investing in singular companies that you can at least start getting involved in the market without having to worry too much? Well, I think you, know, you can buy the index for starters. You know, that's, that's always interesting. I think I think it's more developing the habits of what makes a good investor, and that's kind of constantly learning about things going on. I think I think it's totally okay to buy a single company stock, but just know that you're going to own it for the next five years, and you should probably average into it as well. You know, like the, the one of the first stocks I got was Berkshire Hathaway, and I was just like, oh man, this is so cool, and, and I learned more by owning that than what financial return I've generated um, from it. Do you, do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Because I I was forced to read his annual report every year, and I was meant and I read you know the first couple of pages of the 10Q each quarter. Um, I didn't really understand all of it, but uh, you know over the last decade or so, you, you you build up a kind of a database of knowledge around that business because of it. Do you know what I mean? And, and um, so you you learn a ton by owning an individual company stock. Just don't. Don't bet the farm on it. Do you know what I mean? And, and if you can, allocate into it over time. So you know, I've bought you know a, a number of Berkshire shares over time um, because I've tried to average in you know at particular points in the business cycle. Um, yeah, and and it, if if you know enough, you, you you should buy an individual company stock. You should kind of go. I think you know, this particular Google is a wonderful company, or whatever it is. You know, yeah. without giving stock recommendations, um, you should do that sort of stuff. What has been the best investment you've ever made? It can be financial, but it doesn't have to be. Just, you know, in your investing journey, what's the one thing you really, like, benefited from? Oh, I'd say Berkshire Hathaway, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, just, just allocating to, into that over time um, has been a wonderful thing. And, partic- you know, I remember it, it dropped down really badly in 2009. And because I had been a long-term investor at the time, I kind of understood, you know, what that meant. I, I thought, wow, this is great. Um I was able to you know, buy more at, at depressed levels. So um, it's, it's, it's not easy to understand the differentiation and defensibility of a business in any event. It, that's hard. Mm-hmm. And, and usually the most differentiated and defensible businesses have high valuation multiples. Mm-hmm. But as long as you can hang in them for a long time, usually the underlying economic engine does its job mm-hmm. um, and it builds out. So. What do you think will happen to Berkshire once Warren goes? Well, I think so, so Berkshire has morphed from this kind of guy picking stocks mm-hmm. to an operating business where it has, you know, uh, 68 operating businesses underneath them and, and you know, the, the CIO of that business, which is Warren Buffett, has selected businesses based on competitive advantage and, and you know, which is really just pricing out the ability to lift prices over time. Um, so... Even if he goes and he will, um, you've got this. You've got this wonderful uh, economic engine in those operating businesses, and you have two amazing um, fund managers who also think like Warren Buffett to do it. You know, Warren Buffett is not the only person who can make good investment decisions. Otherwise, that would be what kind of crazy world. Yeah. <laughs> case, right? yeah. but, but usually, the, the, the problem is more the incentive structures that surround people's investment decisions. So, even in private markets, if you look at private equity firms or VC firms or, or corporate, you know, or corporates, every time investment decision is being made, um, really unpick the the the, um, the the incentives of the person making the decision. Usually, there's a lot stacked against them to, to do it. I, I, you know, I've got friends who 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 are fund managers, and their biggest frustration is having to report on returns every month 
problem with that is it, it doesn't matter how long-term you want to be, you're always going to be at the behest of someone receiving a report saying you're up or down 1% in that month, you know, yeah. and, and then explain yourself. It's like, well, you know, not much has happened in the last few weeks, you know. We did a bit of research on your background before we came here, and um, you worked at Airtree, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so, how, and so for our listeners, Airtree is a VC firm, venture yes. capital firm in Australia. Yes. How has that experience sort of shaped your view about investing, and, and especially on the, like, the Australian technology scene? Yeah, look, I, I think you know, Airtree is probably the best VC firm in Australia at this point, and I think it's safe to say. They, they, they started with a $60 million fund in 2013 when, when I joined the business, and we raised that capital. Um, and based on that traction, they've now raised a $250 million business, uh, VC fund. That's the biggest one in Australia. So usually you can't be the biggest fund in Australia unless you know what you're doing. You know? <laughs> um, and they keep continue to building out their team and trying to be more and more helpful to their portfolio companies. You know? So not just having investment professionals, but actually having guys and girls in there that can be helpful to their businesses. So um, Airtree's done phenomenally well. And from really a standing start in 2013, um, and that was also a wonderful experience for me because we got to invest in 20 private companies in the first fund and then, and then work with those, um, those founders over time to kind of, uh, you know, through the ups and downs of, of building those businesses from scratch. I mean, yeah. you know, the, everyone wants to be a VC because it's such a cool job, yeah, right? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so from, from that experience, what, what do you think about the Australian technology scene? Do you reckon there's potential there? And- uh, I think I, I, I think um, I think there's huge potential there. I think I think there's actually hundreds of, of very large technology businesses that people don't even focus on. You know, like it, it, um, we've got someone joining from Campaign Monitor very very shortly. Um, Campaign Monitor is a billion dollar business on Park Street. You know, you you wouldn't even notice. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> um, and and I, I wish there was way more coverage within Australia on on these wonderful businesses that we have. You yeah. know, sometimes I think the reporting on on business and tech in Australia is more sort of pulling people down rather than kind of telling the wonderful stories behind these businesses. Um, I, I, I think, you know, what's what's blossoming now is a lot of private capital is moving in and funding these opportunities, which is great. Some, some of the opportunities are regional, you know, and, and some are sort of global, which is really exciting. Yeah. I, think, I think we still have a long way to go as far as the amount of capital coming into the ecosystem. You know, I talk to... Um, VCs outside of the market, and, and you know, some some of them say that, that we're undercapitalized as far as companies are concerned. You know, and it, it is hard as a founder. You, you sort of you know, you're given a million bucks, and you sort of like build a business. And it's like, well, that's that feels like a lot of money, but it's actually really hard to do. By the time you hire some people and stuff, you, you know, you, you really only have uh, uh, twelve months or something to kind of do stuff, and mm. and. You know, twelve month twelve months isn't even long enough to write a thesis at a university. So how, <laughs> how can you build an economic engine at that yeah. point? You know. So, um, but I think directionally everything's going wonderfully. You just have to give it time. And even you know, we're sitting in Tyra's offices right now, which you know, uh, Andrew Rothwell and the and the team at Tyra have done a phenomenal job of building a business. And it's just so exciting watching and seeing that business uh, grow in front of us. So. Yeah. So um, down down the line for um, Spaceship, do, would you be looking at doing some sort of VC work and putting some of the sort of fund into Australian startups? Yeah, so so I think I, th- I think we have to frame it from this is retirement money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so we're probably not. It's probably not the right place for people to be getting you know ten percent of their super and putting it into a startup that may or may not be around in two years from time. Yeah. 
I think what we've found over the last 10 years is wonderful technology businesses are starting to take longer and longer to get to the IPO markets, right? So Uber is now a over $50 billion valuation. Um, you know, whereas if you look at when um, the trip advisors of the world, where they IPO for when they were less than a billion dollars, you know, now they're worth over ten billion dollars. You know, it's it's we should really have that wealth creation as much as possible available to retail investors. Yeah. And the private markets are usually the sort of arena of wholesale investors, and for good reason because you want the um, you know wholesale investors have more capital where they can lose if things go wrong. So, so if, so if Uber at sixty billion is probably should be in retail hands already because it should be a public business. And then the startup with 12 months to potentially live or die is way, way too early. There's somewhere in between there where it makes sense to allocate a small portion of your retirement portfolio too. Now, this isn't new, you know, all super funds, you know, uh, allocate to PE funds or toll roads and uh, property and all that sort of stuff. Our view of the world is we really believe the next billion dollar business is probably not going to be soft drink business. <laughs> it's, yeah, probably yeah, gonna, it's probably going to be a... a um, a technology business, and, and and if you look at the every company on the on the S and P five hundred that was formed after nineteen seventy, the majority of those were VC backed. Yeah, right. So they all sort of seem to start in VC land and graduate out. Now, I don't, I you know, we will we will do whatever whatever our customers want us to do as long as we think it's in the in their best interest. Um, our customers don't want. Um, direct allocation to VC funds, but they want direct allocation to wonderful private technology companies. Yeah. So we will, you know, we will have a team in place in Australia. I don't know what we'll call it, but you know, it's spaceship something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that will be there to find opportunities in private markets to allocate to wonderful private companies such as technology companies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Right. interesting. Yeah. But everything gets easier if 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 you know folks um, believe in us early and give us the opportunity to kind of build out these wonderful things we want to do. So, you know, the people who are rolled into a spaceship already, we're just so, so grateful for them to put their faith in us because we know we have an incomplete product. You know, we know we have, you know, we know uh, we want to look back to where we are 12 months from now and just go, oh my God, I can't believe anyone, <laughs> anyone even gave us a chance, you know, because it's really hard because we're sort of starting there with, with you know, a small fund. We're in the face of, other super funds out there with 10, 20, 30, 50 billion dollars under management. Um, also, the cycle of super at this age as well is something that might be, well, is hard to break, I totally. guess, because for some of our mates, they're not even thinking about it. Totally. So, totally. getting a, the message across to them that it's totally. something that could benefit them significantly in the long run. Totally. We, we always use the car analogy. We say if you're on $100,000 right now, you're going to spend $9,500 with the fund manager this year. Right? I'd be like, really, am I? And I said, yeah, you are. And if I gave you $9,500 on the table right now, how would you spend that on a car? I said, go buy a car with it, yeah? Mm. Well, what would you do? You'd, you'd, you'd go straight on the internet and you'd be looking at car photos, right? <laughs> and then you'd be going to car yards on the weekend to try cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you'd be talking to your friends about which cars they like and all this sort of stuff. And you'd probably take three months to make a decision. Mm. Whereas with Super, people default into whoever their employee gave yeah, them and so they don't idea. think about it exactly yeah. so and that's really sad but, but when we kind of frame it as a car people are like holy shit I'm buying a car this year I probably should do some work on it yeah, so, yeah. yeah. well we know you have to go so yes. uh, just just before you do yes. um, do you want to give one last plug to Spaceship or you know tell us a tell, buy recommendation for, yeah <laughs> what's that? Oh, buy no. a recommendation well so, so, so from a per- personal Amazon yeah <laughs> 
Um, uh, so, so from a financial advice thing, people should do their own work. I'm, I'm not a financial advisor or anything like that. So I can't give financial advice. Everything I talk about today is really just in the, in the you know, disclaimer of that. You know? um, and, and the good thing is about the industry is they really see us as a positive force. We're trying to help people with not, not, not so much investing but with savings. So superannuation is a, both a savings and an investment product. And I feel like to date, if you look at the product suite that's out there, it's very focused on asset allocations and PDSs and, and, and investments rather than kind of, well, you know, the question all, all our customers keep asking us is, hey, I've got to save 9.5% of my salary this year. That, that number is actually going to 12% by law in 2025. If 9.5% is wrong and 12% is right, should I save 12% this year? I mean, just tell me how much I need to save this year. That's the mm. question. And if, you, if you're if you retiring when, when you're 65, you need some amount of money in a box when you're 65. But no one really knows what number that is, you know, and they don't have the tools to say, hey, I'm on 70000 now. If I want to be earning $70,000 when I'm 65 and not have to work, then I need $3 million in a bank, whatever it is, you know, some number. And, and the product sweet the product roadmap that we have is really around um, making it easy for people to understand what the final number is and and you guys are uh, smart investors right you know financial guys where you can kind of go well if I assume a six percent market return over the next 30 years that means I will have a different savings requirement this year than the guy who's more conservative and only wants to rely on a two percent portfolio return over the next 30 years because the guy who's only relying on a two percent portfolio return has to actually save more this year but you kind of want it such that your customers have a conscious decision as to what they want to kind of rely on, right, from, from, their, from their investments. So we, we, we really, really want to solve savings for this generation. That's what we're trying to do. So That's it. Aim high. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> solve savings. All right. Well, Paul Bennett, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, check out the website, spaceship.com. Dot au. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much, Alan. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, man. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how they pertain to your individual situation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.